Welcome to Heart in Art, the podcast that connects people through their love of creativity. I'm your host, Danny Vanderbrook, a UK-based fiction writer and freelance journalist. Today, we continue with our beginner's crash course in major artistic styles and movements, turning our attention to the neoclassical period. Neoclassicism is a label we use for the period of art history after the Baroque and Rococo, spanning the 18th century Enlightenment era and into the beginning of the 19th century. Paradigms, or broad thought trends, always develop in relation to the period before them, and often shift to embrace an opposing aesthetic, in this case the flowery ornamentation and ostentatiousness of the Baroque and the Rococo eras, gave way to the embrace of the clean lines and pared-back style of classical Greek and Roman antiquity. The Grand Tour was a feature of aristocratic education at the time, where upper-class young men of means would tour around Europe with a chaperone as part of their coming of age at 21. The typical route would take them through places like Geneva, Turin, Venice, Rome, Florence, Vienna or Dresden, and take in all of the sites or art of note throughout classical antiquity. As a result of these tourist trails, it became fashionable to collect antiquities as souvenirs, which in turn spread awareness of the style across Europe and North America. The neoclassical style can be seen in all of the artistic mediums, sculpture, architecture, literature, theatre, music and the decorative arts. Today, though, we're going to take a closer look at how the neoclassical aesthetic was embodied through the literature and portraiture of the time. I'd like to give thanks to the British Museum, the National Gallery, the Khan Academy and the Gutenberg Press, all of whom provided the information which made today's episode possible. Classical literature is characterised by order, accuracy and structure, in direct opposition to Renaissance attitudes where man was seen as basically good. The neoclassical writers portrayed men as inherently flawed. They emphasised restraint, self-control and common sense. Alexander Pope, in his poetical essay, identified and exemplified key neoclassical principles such as wit, rationality, and literary decorum, which means an elegant harmony of style and content. Expression is the dress of thought, and still appears more decent as more suitable. Tis not enough no harshness gives offence, the sound must seem an echo to the sense. True wit is nature to advantage dressed, what oft was thought but ne'er so well expressed. interest is a translation of Homer's Iliad. Over six years, Alexander Pope laboured on a translation of Homer's Greek epic poem and published it by subscription between 1715 and 1720. The Iliad, or the Song of Ilium, is an ancient Greek epic poem, which is told in rhythmic poetic metre called dactylic hexameter, which means there are seven syllables to each line. Homer wrote the original sometime during the 8th century, and Pope's translation was completed in 1899. 
The Iliad is set during the Trojan War, the ten-year siege of the city of Troy or Ilium. It tells of the battles and events during the weeks of a quarrel between King Agamemnon and the warrior Achilles. The story spans a few weeks in the final year of the war, though the Iliad mentions or alludes to many of the Greek legends about the siege, earlier events such as a gathering of warriors for the siege and the cause of the war, and related concerns all tend to appear near the beginning. It includes events prophesied for the future, such as Achilles' imminent death and the fall of Troy. Here's an extract from literary critic and poet Alexander Pope's preface to the Iliad of Homer. Our author's work is a wild paradise where, if we cannot see all the beauties so distinctly as in an ordered garden, it is only because the number of them is infinitely greater. It is like a copious nursery which contains the seeds and the first productions of every kind, out of which those who followed him have but selected some particular plants, each according to his fancy, to cultivate and beautify. If some things are too luxuriant, it is owing to the richness of the soil, and if others are not arrived to perfection or maturity, it is only because they are overrun and oppressed by those of a stronger nature. It is to the strength of this amazing invention we are to attribute that unequalled fire and rapture which is so forcible in Homer, that no man of a true poetical spirit is master of himself while he reads him. What he writes is of the most animated nature imaginable. Everything moves, everything lives and is put in action. If a council be called or a battle fought, you're not coldly informed of what was said or done as from a third person. The reader is hurried out of himself by the force of the poet's imagination and turns in one place to a hearer, in another to a spectator. The course of his verses resembles that of the army which he describes. They pour along like a fire that sweeps the whole earth before it. So we'll now move on to an extract from Pope's translation of Homer's Iliad. Book 1. Argument. The contention of Achilles and Agamemnon. In the war of Troy, the Greeks having sacked some of the neighbouring towns, and taken from thence two beautiful captives, Chryseus and Briseis, allotted the first to Agamemnon, the last to Achilles. Chryses, father of Chryseis, and the priest of Apollo, comes to the Grecian camp to ransom her with which the action of the poem opens in the tenth year of the siege. The priest being refused and insolently dismissed by Agamemnon, entreats for vengeance from his god, who inflicts a pestilence upon the Greeks. Achilles calls a council and encourages Calchas to declare the cause of it, who attributes it to the refusal of Chryseus. The king, being obliged to send back his native, enters into a furious contest with Achilles which Nestor pacifies. However, as he had the absolute command of the army, he sieges on Briseis in revenge. Achilles, in discontent, withdraws himself and his forces from the rest of the Greeks, and complaining to Thetis, she supplicates Jupiter to render them sensible of the wrong done to her son by giving victory to the Trojans. Jupiter, granting her suit, incenses Juno, between whom the debate runs high. 
till they are reconciled by the address of Vulcan. The time of two and twenty days is taken up in this book, nine during the plague, one in the council and quarrel of the princes, and twelve for Jupiter's stay with the Ethiopians, at whose return Thetis prefers her petition. The scene lies in the Grecian camp, then changes to Chrysia, and lastly to Olympus. Achilles' wrath to Greece, the direful spring, of woes unnumbered, heavenly goddess sing, that wrath which hurled to Pluto's gloomy reign, the souls of mighty chiefs untimely slain, whose limbs unburied on the naked shore, devouring dogs and hungry vultures tore. Since great Achilles and Atreides strove, such was the sovereign doom and such the will of Jove. Declare, O muse, in what ill-fated hour Sprung the fierce strife from what offended power Latona's son a dire contagion spread And heaped the camp with mountains of the dead The king of men his reverent priest defied And for the king's offence the people died For Chryses sought with costly gifts to gain His captive daughter from the victor's chain Suppliant the venerable father stands, Apollo's awful ensigns grace his hands. By these he begs, and lowly bending down, extends the sceptre and the laurel crown. He sued to all, but chief implored for grace, the brother kings of Atreus' royal race. Ye kings and warriors, may your vows be crowned, and Troy's proud walls lie level with the ground. May Jove restore you when your toils are o'er, save to the pleasures of your native shore. But oh, relieve a wretched parent's pain, and give Chryseis to these arms again. If mercy fail, yet let my presence move, and dread avenging Phoebus, son of Jove. The Greeks in shouts their joint assent declare, the priest to reverence and release the fair. Not so Atreides, he with kingly pride repulsed the sacred sire, and thus replied, Hence on thy life, and fly these hostile plains, nor ask presumptuous what the king detains. Hence, with thy laurel crown and golden rod, nor trust too far these ensigns of thy god. Mine is thy daughter, priest, and shall remain, and prayers and tears and bribes shall plead in vain till time shall rifle every youthful grace, and age dismiss her from my cold embrace. In daily labours of the loom employed, or doomed to deck the bed she once enjoyed. Hence then to Argos shall the maid retire, far from her native soil and the weeping sire. <laughs> interested in continuing a reading of Pope's translation of Homer's Iliad, it's available for free download on the gutenbergpress.org. In 1719, portrait painter Sir Godfrey Neller painted a portrait of Alexander Pope holding a copy of the Iliad, the book which made his fortune. You can see a copy of this painting on the link on the Heart and Art Facebook page, or you can go straight to the British Library online to the neoclassical archives. This 1719 version of the painting is the only version where we can glimpse Greek letters at the edge of the page, the opening of the Iliad, Book 9. 
the British Library tells us that Pope was fiercely concerned about protecting his public image, and he had every reason to be. Having suffered from Potts disease, a tuberculosis of the bone, he was only 1.4 metres tall, with a hunched back and an eye inflammation. In his day, he was caricatured for his unusual appearance, but paintings like this one flatter him by giving him peachy skin and an upright posture. His fame led to him being shown in more portraits than any other English writer of his generation. Another writer of note during this period was John Dryden, who translated the work of Virgil in 1697. A poet, dramatist and literary critic, Dryden was appointed Poet Laureate by Charles II in 1668. He wrote over 20 plays, including All for Love and numerous poems, particularly political satires and odes, including the famous Ode for St. Cecilia's Day. In 1686, he converted to Catholicism and at the revolution of 1688 was deprived of a laureateship. He devoted the rest of his life largely to translations, notably a, a verse translation of the works of Virgil. The artist James Malbert was commissioned to paint a portrait of Dryden during the years before 1700. The image can be found today in the National Gallery. It depicts Dryden draped in a rich blue velvet gown to emulate the classical Grecian style, with matching indoor blue velvet shoes. He leans against a table covered by a red velvet drape. The sumptuousness of the surroundings evident through the lustre and the high fashion of Dryden's garb and wig. Of note are the pile of books on the table behind Dryden, labelled Montaigne, Horace, Virgil and Homer. The painting is rich in symbolism and allusions to his life as a poet and classical antiquity. The sitting dog at Dryden's feet symbolises the qualities of loyalty and persistence, all of which were vital attributes for a professional writer or a translator of the classics. In the background, perched by an open window, is an eagle with a scroll of paper in its beak, looking out towards Mount Parnassus, home of the classical muses. Traditionally, eagles signified perception, courage and strength, and were considered to be messengers of the gods. Beth Gershnesek tells us neoclassicism was a child of the age of reason. When philosophers believed we would be able to control our destinies by learning from and following the laws of nature, scientific inquiry attracted more attention. Therefore, neoclassicism continued the connection to the classical tradition because it signified moderation and rational thinking, but in a new or more politically charged spirit. Neo means new, or in the case of art, an existing style reiterated with a new twist. Neoclassicism is characterised by a clarity of form, sober colours, shallow space, strong horizontal and verticals that render that subject matter timeless. you enjoyed today's show. If you 
liked it, please give us a rating on your podcast platform, whether you're listening through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, RSS.com, or even Podtail. I'd like to give thanks once more to the British Museum, the National Gallery, the Khan Academy, and the Gutenberg Press, all of whom provided the information which made today's episode possible. I look forward to seeing you for our next episode, which will focus upon romanticism. 